breakfast this morning. Our scripture reading, and I'll invite you to come, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Steve will be sharing from this passage, but we'll read it all at once here before he comes. Paul's words, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you help me to welcome Steve Long as he comes to minister to us? Well, it's certainly a thrill this morning to be preaching at a church that next week Angie and I will have been here for three years. So it seems like it's flown by and it's a, it's a humbling experience to be able to, to preach for you this morning. Also, I am thrilled to be a part of a very small group that has tangibly helped um, Matt get some rest. And I'm excited about that. We should be seeing him in a few weeks, um, but it's very exciting that uh, we've been able to help him. Now, as Austin has mentioned, um, I can't speak Spanish. There's a lot that I can't do. Basically, uh, I didn't read very much as a kid. Um, it's not that I couldn't read. It's that I couldn't sit still. But there was one book I did read that had a profound effect on me. And uh, this was in the early 70s, and it was a Sesame Street book. But it did have an effect on me, and it starred Bert and Ernie, and Bert would uh, regale Ernie with some achievement of man. And uh, Ernie would come back and give an example of an animal that could better that very feat. For instance, maybe Bert would say, uh, man has created this Winnebago and he can just travel all over the place with his, with his house, a mobile house. And Ernie would mention the turtle or the snail. But the one that uh, I really remember was uh, the flea. I don't remember what Bert had said, but Ernie mentioned the flea, and the flea can jump 200 times its own height. That's pretty impressive. So if the average man, six-foot man, that would be him jumping four and a half Hammond's Towers. Yeah, so see, that's why it had an impression on me. It's a good book. So that has made me kind of this man versus beast. I've been interested in this. So I was watching the YouTube not very long ago. And I saw 
a video of some fishermen who had caught an octopus. And this video is about the octopus escaping the boat. Now, what I learned is that a 600-pound octopus can escape a hole the size of a quarter. Imagine that, 600-pound octopus escaping the size, the hole of a quarter. And I thought about Obert and Ernie, and I thought, wait a minute. We can reverse this because I think man can outdo that. In fact, I think this man can outdo that. Because when it comes to the demands of Scripture, I don't even need a hole the size of a quarter to escape. It seems like I can just wriggle out of the commands without any perceived hole at all. Let me give you an example. We all remember when Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, cling to the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. But, and I know it says no one, but I think maybe I can. Maybe I'm the exception. And it's not that we get together and we have a Bible study and I say, maybe I'm the exception. It's, it's just the way I live. I live like I've escaped the demands of the Scripture. Our text this morning in 1 Corinthians is one that I escape quite often. And it's not necessarily, like I say, it's not like we have a family meeting and say, okay, guys, these are the tactics to escape these demands. It's the old man within us, and he's so good. He's been doing this all my life. He's been wiggling out, wriggling out. And so one of the ways that this is done is with a casual reading of the Scripture. If anyone in this room could get me a glass of water, thank you, Austin. You're a precious thank you. Um, one of the ways is a casual, and I might even say, please forgive me, I might even say a devotional reading. There is a nonchalance to our reading. For instance, Brother Warren, if you could put up verse 1 through 3, and look at verse 3 here. It says, if I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that, can we just say that's beautiful? If I'm going to do a devotion, that's beautiful. But the question is, is do I believe it? Thank you, brother. Appreciate you so much. Some of us are old enough to remember back in eight, uh, 19, back in 18, back in 1989, um, there was a uh, college student in Tiananmen Square as the Chinese army came in to break things up and a man stood in front of a row of tanks. He later became known as Tank Man. Undoubtedly, you've all seen the picture. Now, never have I been with a group who's admired that picture or told that story. Anyone has said, well, I wonder if he was motivated by love. How about look at verse 2 right there with us. 
It says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, isn't that beautiful? Somebody thought there was going to be a wedding today because we were reading 1 Corinthians 13. It is beautiful. But do I believe it? Let's say there's a man named Atticus, and he had enough faith to remove some of the Rockies to Lawrence County. So as we're driving 30 minutes down I-44 for a day of alpine skiing, we meet in the ski club, and someone says, I wonder if O. Atticus had love in his heart when he did this. Do you see how a casual reading can allow us to escape the demands of this passage? Rather than wriggling out, which is the old man's default, I want to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle till I get pinned and can barely breathe. And so that means yes. Yes, we ask the questions. If miraculous faith is baptized in love, because love is more important than faith that can move mountains and giving all I have to the poor and even my body to be burned. However, brother, if you'll put verses 4 through 7, this is the passage which gets my old man in overdrive. Now, I wouldn't have mind if Paul would have said something like this. Love is adventurous and optimistic. It is being what nobody thought you would be. Love is not passive, but vivacious. Love is life filled to its fullest. I'd say, pour me another cup of coffee. I like this devotion. There's, there's no demands. It's so ambiguous. It's asking of me nothing. But what does Paul say? Paul says, love is patient. And I say, wait just a second. Isn't patience patient? Aren't these two entirely different categories? You can't be jamming them all together. But what this means is that if you're good at love and bad at being patient with irritable people, you're not good at love. See, that's why I prefer escaping these. And then we see, he says next, that love is kind, and we are confronted with the same objections. What? I mean, I really prefer adventurous and optimistic. So we can't read just casually or um, what has in my day become devotional, just a... Just a mellow reading with my coffee in one hand because it's time to read the Bible. But the old man isn't done with his escapes even though we're going to have a non-casual reading. Let's say we're going to get serious. So the old man next says, well, let's narrow the scope. Let's narrow the scope, the targets of my love. Yes, I need to be patient, of course, duh. I'll be patient with you all, my fellow solid Rockians. 
Now, it has been an uphill battle, but with the Spirit's help, I have been able to be patient with Tim and Beth Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. So is that the way I'm going to escape this? But then I want you to look... At these, look at these four through seven. Just look at these characteristics of love. And almost every one of them require another human being. Almost every one of them. So what we tend to do is we tend to narrow the scope so I can succeed. Then I can shut my Bible and thank God that I'm not like other men. Good study. But according to our text, love is not smiles or laughter or consensus. Love is patience. And keep in mind, as I mentioned to the group this morning that met early for prayer, that this is Paul writing. And Paul didn't, he he didn't write most of his letters with his feet dangling by a little heater, electric heater, and looking over a beautiful garden. He wrote so many while he was unjustly incarcerated. He was beaten multiple times. He was exiled out of cities. He was hungry. He was homeless. And all this because his interactions with people. So when you read of Paul being beaten, keep in mind these are people beating him. And yet he gives us the fullest expression of what Christian love is in the entire Bible. So we want to stop escaping and let the full weight of these demands fall on us. And so as I said, we look here at these characteristics and we cannot be patient or kind while alone. There needs to be another person involved. This does go against every image of super spirituality I have ever had. My idea of spirituality Super spirituality happens when I'm away from other people. Spiritual living is country living, monastic living. Give me a mountaintop, or at most, like communal living. If we all believe and love and think the same, now that's spirituality. But that is not true according to this passage. True spirituality is loving people who require patience and kindness, people who insist on their own way, people I could envy, people I would rather be rude to, people who irritate me and make me resentful, people I have to bear with and endure. In a word, jerks. This is what Christian spirituality looks like. Let's be honest. We've been here three years, and not once have I had to be patient with Tim and Beth. (laughs) Not once. Smack in the middle of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts, Paul pauses to define what true spirituality is. True biblical New Testament Christ-pleasing spirituality has as it as at its heart jerks. Now, 
we're going into round two. If we're taking this passage seriously, we're going to wrestle with it here. Paul says, love does not insist on its way and is not irritable or resentful. I say that love is the exact thing that causes me to insist on my own way and make me irritable and resentful. Let me explain. It is the love for my plans and my downtime and my hobbies and my family and my possessions. When my feet are up and my day is done, I am in love. And when the neighbor calls, when I'm in that position and needs a ride, that's irritating. Why? Well, because I love my plan so much. You see, Paul isn't addressing a lack of love. We all have bushels of love. My love for the books being balanced is why I don't forgive. My love for my money is why I'm not generous. My self-love has led to escaping the demands of passages like this over and over and over. Paul's not saying that Christians don't have enough love. This passage is redirecting our love. Redirecting it about 180 degrees. It is exactly the self-love of the Corinthians and their desire for the coolest spiritual gifts that Paul has to pause and speak of what true spiritual love is. If I speak in tongues, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, if I have all faith and have not love, nothing, zero, all the spiritual giftedness in the world isn't worth a dime if you miss the very heart of the Spirit, which is love. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. These gifts exist to build up the church so the church can do the work of the church. And what is the heart of the church's work is being patient with those who make you want to pull your hair out. It is being kind to the one who got kicked out of school again. It is not being resentful to Karen, a neighbor who sent her five-year-old son Bubba to a psychiatrist because she never took the time to talk to him. It is not being rude when Calvin, Calhoun, excuse me, a neighbor, after moving from four states away to get sober and succeeded, starts drinking again. It is enduring with Jared and Melissa, neighbors, who were unprepared when I went to drive them to their own 18-year-old son's funeral at which I was speaking because they were glued to the TV. 
the church's work, turning resentment and irritation and impatience and frustration that arises and justifies itself at the very cellular level is turning that into patience and kindness and endurance. But I say we've come a long way with this text that I believe that the old man is still at work, almost unperceivably at work. When we hear about neighbors on Sherman and the web of problems that they have, we resist a little bit. Psychology and sociology has given us the language that kind of trumps old Paul. The language of enabling. Brothers and sisters, fear words that justify indifference. Remember, our old man will use any excuse to escape the demands. I am not saying that enabling is a good thing to do. I am saying a lot of good things are not done because of the language of enabling. No one has enabled more than God. The reason Karen can send Bubba away, Calhoun can visit the liquor store, Jared and Melissa can be late to their own son's funeral, is because God was giving them distractions and taste buds and amusements. He was giving them their very life and all those organs that were working in their bodies. He was upholding them by the power of his word. And that's what this passage is about. It's treating people like God does. It's treating people like Jesus did. It really matters to God that people matter to us. Let me mention one thing real quickly that Something that will be helpful, I think. Jesus' command for us to love our neighbors is not a means to an end. In other words, I think often, not necessarily have been taught this, but I just think it's been modeled for me and just in my own thinking, I think the ultimate end is evangelism is getting my neighbor saved. And the means to that end is love. Therefore, when there is an unequivocal rejection to my invitation, I can turn the love spigot off. I think that's what I've thought. But loving your neighbor is not a means to an end. Loving your neighbor is the end itself. That's what Jesus said, not me. So we love our neighbors. Do we want our neighbors converted to Christ? Absolutely. But when they reject it, in the vilest way possible, we love our neighbor. 
Also, I think it's important that we're living in a time right now that we call polarizing. We're in polarizing days. We're, uh, we're living in p times when if people vote different than us, they pretty much don't matter. Hate is currently as American as apple pie. Brothers and sisters, we are not involved. We do not have the equipment as Christians to be polarized. Polarization is, you know, you put two magnets together and they stick and then you turn them around and there's a polarity between them. They, they are repulsed. Christians don't have that equipment to be repulsed by anyone that disagrees with us. Jesus stripped us of all polarization when he extended the scope of love even as we sang this morning to our enemies. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Father in heaven, the great enabler himself. He is telling us to love like he does. And we represent him in our neighborhoods. And we represent him at our jobs. And we represent him at Walmart. And brethren, I want us to wrestle with the scripture. I am preaching this morning for repentance. Where is the focus of your love? Where is the focus of my love? Is your reading too casual? Is your scope too narrow? Is your language too modern? Brother Kevin, you come, if you will. As we join together in the eating of this blessed meal of remembrance, let us remember that it was on our Lord's final evening, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then the writer of John makes this editorial remark, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We celebrate the love which caused the infinite drop of Jesus from equality with God to death on the cross and respond by committing ourselves to the glad, obedient risk of other-focused love. So will you join me this morning at the table and, and um, we'll form two lines and someone will, Austin will be over there and, and uh, we'll say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and you take it to your seat. But brethren, if there is a resistance this morning, if there is a resistance to this kind of love in your heart, and you see that it's true, but you say, no, why don't you just remain seated and pray that God would change your heart? 
Otherwise, you come and you join us this morning.